All right, the youth can be dismissed for Sunday school. The rest of us, go ahead and grab your Bible and turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find one on a seat somewhere near you. Look left or right, front or back. Romans chapter 5, which is kind of towards the end of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. We're in a a verse-by-verse study through this excellent book. Um, we, if, if you're kind of newer with us, we do hear what's called expository preaching, which is to say, we'll just take a, like a whole book of the Bible and just study verse by verse through it, kind of one, one logical chunk, one section at a time. And so we've been plowing our way through Romans for a little over a year, and we're in Romans chapter five. And as you're turning there, welcome to everybody. Good to see y'all, especially if you're newer with us. It's a joy to have you. Gather with us for worship this morning, Romans chapter 5, verse 9 through 11, and the title of this morning's study is The Certainty of Salvation. We finished, we were in uh, verses 6 through 8 for a couple weeks, and so we're uh, in verses 9 through 11. Well, every human being, even... An atheist will admit, some atheists will admit this, every human being is body and soul. You're not just meat and bones. You're visible and invisible. So it follows that our needs are not just material, they are also spiritual. The greatest need of a human being, of course, is salvation. Uh, salvation, which is kind of that theological term that describes what God has done, what we, largely what we sang about, and God's love motivated by his mercy upon us as sinners. Forgiveness in Christ, forgiveness of all our sin, that's the greatest need of a human being. To be reconciled to God are the ways we fall short and violate his commandments, whether in thought or in deed. We fall short. We need to be reconciled to God for that. That's our greatest need. And, of course, eternal life. There's more to life than just what we see and hear now. There's, of course, life to come. As anthropologists and explorers in centuries past traveled the world and discovered even indigenous tribes, they all understood, yeah, there's something more than just this life here. God is hardwired into us. Ecclesiastes 3 talks about that, that he's placed eternity in our hearts. So we know that. The greatest need is salvation. We obviously understand we need food, we need water, we need shelter, things like that, safety. But because the death rate is 100%, is one per person, we need the greater provision of salvation. And the book of Romans is this gift from God, as we've been studying, God's very word, which says loudly that God despite the ways we fall short and are imperfect in his mercy, through Christ provides our greatest need, through the person, the life, the perfect life, the sinless life, the crucifixion for our sins, and the resurrection, the reign of Jesus Christ by faith in him. This, this, this gift is free uh, that we receive by embracing Jesus, putting our, our, our trust in him. It's not earned through works. It's not... We don't buy it from God on like a moral performance. It's given freely by faith in Jesus Christ. And of course, there's no greater news than this. There's no greater pillow for your soul 
There's no greater comfort in a world that's often discomforting, where sorrows, unfortunately, are, are not rare. This good news of the gospel, the gospel message, is a huge comfort. But one question that people have asked through the millennia, and that the, the people, some of the people who were probably first receiving this book of Romans in Rome, about 50-ish AD, first century, and a common question now is, okay, that's, that's great that like, God provides this salvation, but how sure is that? How secure is it? How certain is that? Uh, like, well, will, will there be a day where maybe if I do something and God says in effect, oh, sorry, you don't have that salvation anymore. You were forgiven, you were going to heaven, but you're not anymore. Is it possible to have this salvation, exit this life, and then realize, oh, I, I lost it. It's not certain. It was shakable. It was a maybe salvation. It was a potential salvation. That's a, a question that people have asked and pondered over the millennia. This is a huge issue in church history during the 16th century Protestant Reformation. Rome had taught that you can't, that, that this salvation isn't a certain one because they also taught, it follows the logic makes sense, you had to earn this theological term we've been studying in Romans 3 and 4, justification. Yes, it is by faith, but it's also through human works, or as Rome has called it, the sacraments. So it follows that you, like, when can you be sure if you've done enough works to know you're going to go to heaven? You can't be, which is why the, the fictitious teaching of purgatory existed. And so this is a huge issue in the Protestant Reformation. And as the reformers, Calvin and Luther and many others began to read the scriptures, and as they were translated out of Latin, they saw, oh, whoa, that's not quite true. Even more in history, going back further, in the 4th and 5th century, uh, we studied this in Entrust, there was a British monk named Pelagius who taught, no, you, you can't be sure. This isn't a certain salvation. And Pelagianism is kind of that fancy, heady theological term that was used and is used today to describe that idea that this is a maybe salvation, a potential maybe you're going to heaven. After, after that, later, about over a thousand years after the Reformation, the term Arminianism, which came from Jacob Arminius in later in the, 17, in the early 17th century, named after him and some of his followers, same kind of teaching. This is a maybe salvation. It's a potentially going to heaven. You can't be certain of it. And then finally, one of the more popular individuals in history, Charles Finney, born in 1792 from New York, uh, who popularized Finneyism and is known as the father of modern revivalism, uh, did a lot of damage, who believed absolutely not, you cannot be sure of salvation. In fact, Finney answers this in his Systematic Theology, page 46. He says, I want to read this. He says, quote, and I want to read this because he's been so influential on American Christianity and revivalism. He says, quote, whenever the Christian sins, he must for the time being cease to be holy. This is self-evident. Whenever he sins, he must be condemned. 
He must incur the penalty of the law of God. If it be said that the precept is still binding upon him, the law, in other words, commands, but that with respect to the Christian, the penalty is forever set aside or abrogated, I reply that to abrogate the penalty is to repeal the precept, for a precept without a penalty is no law. In other words, he's saying, if you like fall into a hard season of sin as a Christian, you're not saved anymore because the command of God is still in the Bible. That's what Finney is saying. He goes on to say, quote, the, the, it, the Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys. Justified meaning to be declared in right standing with God. And the Christian must be condemned when he disobeys. In these respects, then, the sinning Christian and the unconverted sinner are upon precisely the same ground, end quote. Uh, that's Finney. In many uh, Christian circles, I mean, he's considered like a hero. And that is just unfortunate teaching, to put it lightly. In other words, he says, if you sin as a Christian, you're no longer saved, just like an unbeliever is no longer saved. Imagine the anxiety in the soul that would create. To be thinking like, okay, have I done enough today for God to keep me in heaven? This week, have I, like been, have I been obedient enough for God to still say I'm forgiven and I'm declared in right standing with God? I, mean, I can't think of any more nerve-wracking doctrine or way to live. More important than how it makes it feel, how it makes us feel, we need to look to Scripture and to the authoritative Word of God and say, is this true? How certain is salvation? This big issue over which God's people have debated. And this passage will answer it, I think, in a profound and a convincing way. So follow along as I read. I'm going to start actually in verse 6 of Romans 5. We'll, uh, we'll read through verse 11. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11. The inspired, inerrant, and authoritative word of God reads, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, verse 9, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So, Romans, great, great gift to the church. Many of God's people over the millennia and centuries have considered it the most important book of the Bible. Uh, some have said things along the lines of, if, if you know and understand Romans, this kind of like unlocks an understanding all of what God is doing in redemptive history and helps un understand much of the word of God, what God is doing in Christ. From in chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 21, right? It was a lot of bad news. In effect, loudly saying, hey, We've all fallen short of the commands of God, of the commandments. We need a savior. We need Christ. From chapter 3, verse 21 through the end of chapter 4, 
And God in his mercy has met our need through justification. Justification by faith alone and Christ alone. One of the most important phrases to understand as a believer as it pertains to our greatest need of salvation. And now chapter five is kind of fleshing that out, digging a little deeper and talking about like, what are some repercussions of justification of salvation? And beloved, this passage, this passage is just gushing forth the love of God. We spent two weeks on, on the greatness of God's love was our title of verses six through eight. And this is just like a, a, a spring that's just bursting out of the bottom and the side of a mountain with a continual flow of God's love and grace. Such an important passage to understand. Uh, the love of God here in Romans chapter 5. Each, each verse is sort of, it's not repetitive, but it's kind of walking around this diamond of God's love and, and like looking at, looking at it from different angles. It's not repetitive. It's just considering the love of God in the gospel and justification and his extravagant grace from different angles. So now the text wants to move forward and say, how secure is that salvation? You know, can I be a Christian one week and not another because I've done something and God said, sorry, I'm taking that away. You know, he loves me, he loves me not kind of thing. In light of God's love shown to sinners, the text is going to say salvation is so secure. It cannot be lost. Last week, we studied five realities of God's love in verse 6 to 8. Now, this is sort of a so what. So what about God's love? Again, this text going on and on about his love. God could have just said in one verse, God loves you. I love you. But, but that's not enough. God wants us to understand and auger down what does that mean? And to, and to dig deep and understand, well, what, what, what does that mean that God loves you? That's a, that's a phrase that can be easily thrown around. And there's a lot of deep doctrine here in Romans 4 and everyone else. And that's because doctrine and the grace and love of God, they're not mutually exclusive. Some of the heady stuff and the love of God, those aren't at odds. They complement one another. In fact, we can't fully understand the love of God without digging down and understanding these deep doctrines. This, this, this theology, this rich theology in this section requires that kind of to stretch our minds and we stop and we think for more than five seconds about that phrase, God is love, God loves us. And as we kind of dig down and build this foundation of the love of God, it really is something for our lives to stand on in a world that often is not loving and in circumstances that often aren't comforting where there's abounding affliction. So with that, from verse 9 through 11, uh, if you're taking some notes, we're going to see three reasons that salvation in Christ is certain. Three reasons we know that salvation in Christ is certain. The certainty of salvation. Number one is this, the first reason. The certainty because of past justification. First, we know the, that salvation is certain. It's not going to be take away, taken away because of the certainty of past justification. This will be found in verse 9. 
A believer's past justification guarantees future secure salvation and rescue from wrath. Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood will be saved from the wrath of God through him. So this phrase, much more, it appears in verse 9 and 10. Much more than what? What can be much more than what we've studied in verse 6 to 8 on the love of God? Well, this is what's happening here in verse 9 and 10 is what we call an argument of the greater to the lesser. This is how the text is going to prove the certainty of salvation among other ways. This, this, the, the greater to lesser argument, it was super popular among like Jewish rabbis. Jesus uses this form of argumentation in Matthew 7, 11, when he's talking about in prayer, God, if you know how to give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will God do so? There's a much more than a greater to lesser, and we, we need to follow, follow this masterful reasoning here. Paul's like a, like a skilled lawyer here who just drives down this irrefutable point on the certainty of salvation. So the text is saying, okay, I want to show you something, this greater thing that's true, therefore the lesser. And as it does this in verse 9 and 10, pay, clo- pay close attention, this requires some, some uh, brain power here, that the text will first, in each verse, will say, okay, here's the greater problem, that we face, that God overcame. Second, therefore, here's the lesser problem that God will overcome if he's overcome the greater one. And third, overcoming both of those, hang with me here, doesn't depend on you as, the, as a human to overcome and therefore keep salvation secure. It depends on God. Okay? Greater argument, Greater problem God overcame, therefore the lesser, and God is the one who's doing it. So what about this? So what? It's everything. That you can lay your head on the pillow and know there's not going to be this garbage of he loves me, he loves me not, and salvation is in the balance. None of that. So first, what's the greater thing that God overcame? This greater Look at verse 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. This is the greater problem which God solved in the past, justified by his blood or justification. Recall, we spent a lot of time on this in chapter 3 and 4. Justified, the original term in, in, the, in first century Greek into which the language into which the New Testament was given, it was a legal term, like a courtroom term, that means to declare, to instantly and irreversibly declare somebody righteous. To declare a criminal righteous and permanent right standing. To be justified includes, remember this phrase, double imputation. And this is a human being's greatest need, double imputation. Where justified or justification means when Jesus died on the cross, everybody who would ever put faith upon him and believe in him God imputes or credits our sin to Christ. So Christ is treated and punished as if he committed all our sin. That's the first part of imputation. The second part is, Jesus, who never sinned, his perfectly righteous life, is simultaneously imputed or credited to us. 
such that God looks at you when you put faith in Christ as if you lived Jesus' life. How does he do this? On the basis of the life, the perfect life, and the death of Christ for our sins. That's justification. And it is instant the moment the sinner puts faith in Jesus. We're declared in right standing. Verse 9, how does it happen? Look at verse 9. Justified by his blood. When the term blood is used with reference to Christ, it doesn't mean like he got his arm chopped off and blood all over and, oh, because Christ's arm was chopped off and there's some blood there, you're, you're magically forgiven. It means his death. He died. Ezekiel 14, 18, 4, excuse me. The sin, the, the soul who sins shall die. Death is the penalty. Genesis 2, 17. Christ is a substitute, does that at our place. And this is how this massive dilemma is solved. The dilemma is, the dilemma that justification solves is, it's the greatest dilemma in the universe. How can the holy God, who's perfect, who breathed the stars, spoke the worlds into being, how can that God who is perfect have us who fall short every day stand before him acceptable, exit this life, and be welcomed into heaven when we're how we are compared to him? That's the greatest dilemma, and justification is how God solves it, that double imputation. Crediting our sin to Christ on the cross, that's that our sins are all wiped away, crediting his righteousness to us. That's the greater dilemma. Talk about a dilemma solved, beloved. Justification, and it's by faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay, greater dilemma. So now second, what's the therefore, greater to the lesser, this smaller dilemma? Look back at the text in verse 9. So much more than having now been justified by his blood. By the way, I forgot to mention, look at justified is past tense. Having now been justified, speaking to a believer, if you're a believer, past tense, having been justified. It's not progressive. You don't earn right standing with God. It's past tense by faith in Christ. Since that past tense thing God solved, we shall be, future tense, shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's a it's secure, it's, it's, a, it's a certain deal. Now, let, let's observe something more. Again, I mentioned this passage is kind of meaty theologically. Notice how there is a future aspect of salvation. Look at it there in verse 9. So, having been justified, there's a past act, aspect of salvation. We shall be saved from the wrath of God. There's a future aspect of salvation. Typically, when we're talking about, hey, is, is someone saved? We're only thinking about like past tense. Oh, yeah, I believed in Jesus. But actually, this salvation package that God gives by faith has a past tense to it, a, a, a present tense, and a future. Meaning, in, in the past, it can be said of a believer, they're saved in the sense of they've been justified. All their sins, past tense, the moment they believe, are forgiven. Past tense, they're reconciled to God. There's a present tense, present aspect to salvation. Presently, you are being saved. Romans 6 will talk about that. Presently, you're being saved from not the penalty of sin, that's past tense, but the power of sin. As a believer, we're not perfect, but God is progressively chipping away the things in your life which are not like Christ. That's the present aspect of salvation. 
future tense, which is here in Romans 5, 9. There's a future sense of salvation, which we will be saved from the final justice and punishment of sin. This is what this is talking about. And it's the most consequential that, that someone would obviously be in a nerve-wracking state about if they weren't sure what, if this is true. Past tense, all sin forgiven. Present tense, from the power of sin. Future tense, the final justice and punishment of sin. Paul's dealing here with this future sense. Since justification has happened, end of verse 9, we shall, shall be saved from the wrath of God. That word saved there, it has the idea of rescue from something from which you can't rescue yourself. And notice, beloved, we need to, we need to just stop here on this phrase, the wrath of God. Uh, we get it. We understand that our culture just totally repudiates the idea and disdains the fact that one day God's wrath absolutely is going to be unleashed on people who have refused the love of Christ and who say, no, thank you. I don't need the forgiveness that's in Jesus. It would be extremely unloving if we just sugarcoat things and say, oh, no, God doesn't care about that. He'll just say, no big deal, because that's not what Jesus has said. There is a wrath to come. Absolutely. God's word is clear. Matthew 3, 7. I'll throw out just a bunch of verses. You can look at them later. Talks about there's a wrath to come. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 1. Let's actually turn over there real quick. Keep your pen in Romans 5. Turn forward to 2 Thessalonians 1. After Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, before 1 and 2 Timothy, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If we stutter... And quiet and, you know, kind of put proverbial white out over the verses on this one. We're not being loving to people. Before I became a believer in my early 20s here, 23 years ago, I needed to be told and someone loved me enough to tell me there is a wrath to come. And I'm so thankful that people were loving enough to tell me that. Second Thessalonians 1, verse 8, dealing out retribution, this is God, to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And, and as believers, we understand we deserve that. Our, our sin renders us in a place where we should get that, but because of forgiveness, we won't. Other passages, Revelation 6, 16 and 17. Revelation 20, verse 11 to 15. Matthew 25, 41, 46. Again, there are many. Every single person, as you walk around in this town, as you're out skiing or whatever you're doing, you look around, every single person, every single person sitting here, absolutely, will spend an eternity either experiencing the wrath of God in hell or the unspeakable blessing and joy of God in heaven. And I'd be a hateful liar if I told you anything else because God has said it clearly. Every person, every person we know and our families, people we love, it's going to be one of two things. And that should change us as believers if you're a believer to help us have a certain tenderness, a humility, but also an urgency and a prayerfulness. 
and an urgency towards people who are teetering and whose lives show that they are hanging in the balance. If you saw a blind man, if you're in Moab, mountain biking, you're riding Porcupine Rim, and part of Porcupine Rim rides next to 500-foot cliffs. If you saw a blind man walking towards the edge of the cliff and you had an ounce of love in you, you'd run and yell and grab them and pull them away. And there ought to be something of that, a care, a compassion, a love, an urgency in a believer as we think about people perishing. It doesn't have to be that way, though. You can place faith in Christ. Justification is by falling down faith, trusting in Jesus alone. And that past, final, instantaneous, God says, you put faith in Jesus, gavel down, forever and instantaneously declared in right standing as if you have lived Jesus' life. That having been done guarantees you're going to detour. You're not going to come under God's wrath because God looks at you as if you lived Jesus' life. Salvation is secure. It's certain. As it says in verse 9, having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God and notice through him. It is not through us. I'm so glad that the end of verse 9 doesn't say through my works, through my deeds, through my intentions. Otherwise, salvation wouldn't be secure. Because we're so up and down on some days, aren't we? It's through him. So that's the part where I was mentioning third, greater, number one, lesser, number two. Third, that this, this certainty of salvation doesn't depend on us. It's through him not through our works. Imagine a boy, imagine a four-year-old boy has a father with like extravagant wealth, billionaire, tons of resources, and he buys a beautiful 10,000 acre land and estate, builds an incredible house, glorious gardens, this little boy, this, this father-son is amply supplied. And one day, the little boy gets thirsty, pulls on the refrigerator door with all his might, cracks that refrigerator door open, and then with his little four-year-old hands, climbs up inside the refrigerator, pulls himself up, almost falls, puts his chin up and notices on the top shelf, there's no milk. There's no milk. And Junior panics. Oh, no milk. What am I going to do? And he runs, wakes up his daddy. Daddy, daddy, what am I going to do? There's no milk in the fridge. And that little boy doubts that his daddy has the resources to buy a gallon of milk. How silly would that be, right? In light of, in light of all the resources that this father has and what he's already done, For the child, it just makes no sense. So it is in salvation. With justification, the greater thing in the bag, faith alone in Christ alone, all the future stuff will be taken care of. Number two. The certainty of salvation, number two, because of past reconciliation. The certainty because of past reconciliation. Because of past reconciliation, this will be found in verse 10. Another reason why eternal life can't be lost, past reconciliation. 
Again, the greater to the lesser argument here. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, here's that, that trigger of the greater the lesser, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. All right, so remember the three-point three format. The greater thing God overcame, lesser problem God will overcome. Third, it depends on God alone to overcome that and therefore to keep our salvation secure. Let's look at it. Verse 10, look at the beginning. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. Here's the past dilemma. I mean, here's, you talk about a conundrum. The Bible doesn't flatter us. It loves us too much for that to tell us the truth. It tells us the truth instead of flattery. This past dilemma, think of it. God says you were enemies before you're, you're saved. It doesn't matter if you sat in a Bible church and warmed a pew. You grew up and grandma was a believer and, and she carted you off to Sunday school. You might have learned a lot of verses. It doesn't matter. Before you put faith in Christ, verse 10, we're all an enemy of God. For 23 years of my life, I was an enemy of God, despite the arrogance I had in myself and praising myself, and the delusion I lived in. I mean, that's just, you know, if this is your first time hearing that, it might seem kind of strong, like, oh, an enemy? I mean, I don't know about that. Well, think of it this way. How many times in life do we just live like, oh, I want my own way? I don't want God telling me what to do. I'll do what I want, when I want, how I want, with who I want. Which is to say, I want to be my own Lord and God. Which is to say, I don't want God to be my God. Which is to say, I'm an enemy of God. This word enemies carries the idea of someone whose demeanor is hostile to another. Combative, an attacker looking for ways to oppose Someone who wants their enemy not just to go away, but to die. Someone who wants their enemy to be disgraced, shamed, disdained. That's what an enemy is. Hatred piled on them. That's how we were. And sadly, that's how much of society still is. Just look at what they do when God is mentioned. And God could have, like any other king in world history, said, oh, you're my enemy? Well, I'm just going to come flatten you. I'll just destroy you. Like human kings have done wars in world history. Oh, that's my enemy? I'm just going to shave him to the ground. They're gone. I'll just do away with them. But not God. In the tenderness of God's mercy. Absolutely incredible. As his enemy, he looked at us and said, not only do I want you to not be my enemy anymore, I'll do the work to make you not my enemy anymore. And not only that, though you're my enemy, I want you to spend eternity in heaven with me. Not only that, I want you to be my child. Not only that, I'm going to have my son, who's not my enemy, who I love dearly, treat him as if he was my enemy, put him on the cross, so that you don't have to be my enemy anymore. And so that you can come and spend eternity with me in heaven. Who does that with enemies? Nobody ever has, but God does. This is what God did for his sworn enemies. 
Beloved, does that not soften your heart? If you're alive and have a heart beating right now, let that just tenderize us to humility and put some of the grudges and aggravations and, oh, I'm upset at this person. Let it just put that in perspective. Think about it, being upset at somebody else. What did God do towards us as we were his enemies? Did he hold a grudge? Did he slander us? Did he get bitter at us? No, he, he puts his son on a cross for his enemies. What a, what a tender, loving God. Why, why would you want to worship any other God? Why, who wouldn't want to put faith in Christ in light of a God like this? He crushes his perfect son for his enemies. So that's the greater dilemma. Okay, if while we were enemies, what happened? Verse 10, we were reconciled. Again, that past tense, and it's also passive in the sense that we didn't do the reconciling. God does the reconciling through the death of his son, through Jesus. I mean, that's huge. If in the past we were reconciled as enemies, and Dr. James Boyce says this, quote, to reconcile means to remove the grounds of hostility and transform the relationship, changing it from one of enmity to one of friendship. That's what God did for us. If he's done that, if when we are enemies, he reconciles us to him. Think about this. Paul just says, okay, follow, follow the reasoning. Look at the end of verse 10. Much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You see that? You follow the reasoning there? Okay? If you're an enemy, in other words, he's saying, and God loved you enough to reconcile you to him, once you're saved, you're no longer an enemy, but a child of God. Do you think you will fall out of God's favor that he won't ultimately bring you into salvation in the future tense and save you? If God loved you when you're an enemy enough to save you, as a child, he'll certainly love you all the more such that your salvation will be secure. Why? Because people usually love their children more than they love enemies. And God loved his enemies, so even more, he'll love his children, and therefore, beloved, the certainty of salvation. Rest in that. Rejoice in that. And do away with Phineas and Arminian doctrines of the maybeness of salvation. No way. No potentiality when it comes to salvation. And notice that all of this again, Paul's hammering down. He keeps hammering down the nail. It depends, this certainty of salvation doesn't depend on us. Look back at verse 10. We were reconciled through the death of his son. Having been reconciled, past tense, we shall be saved by his life. Through Christ, Paul's saying over and over, it's through Christ, it's through Christ, it's through Christ. His death, his life, meaning he's alive. Since he's alive and standing at the right hand of the Father, when Satan accuses us, not if, but when, forget about how we feel, more importantly, before the judge of all the earth, God's like, that's not happening. My son already reconciled them because I loved them when they were enemies much more than. 
Salvation will be secure as my blood-bought children. Follow the reasoning there? Done deal. Finally, number three. So number one, the certainty of past justification. Number two, the certainty because of past reconciliation. Right? If someone's going to reconcile someone and have enough love for them as an enemy, certainly they're going to keep them when they're not an enemy, which we're not as believers. And number three, finally, the third reason salvation is secure, the certainty because of present rejoicing. The certainty because of present rejoicing. This is found in verse 11. There's a certainty of salvation for the believer because of present rejoicing. The two previous ones were based on past stuff. Paul no longer will use the greater to lesser argument, but it's no less profound and encouraging. The certainty because of present rejoicing. Look at verse 11. And not only this, but we also boast or exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Let's follow the reasoning of the verse here. So, not only this, I mean, which is amazing in itself, what else could God possibly pile on here? And all the love and grace he's just been deluging us with. Not only this, there's more. There could be more on top of all that. Yeah, there is. Because he's the God of grace. John 1.18, grace upon grace. Verse 11, not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Boast, the, the, the original word has the idea of a, a celebration, uh, uh, an attitude of anticipation that is accompanying with joy because of the guarantee of a future event. The settled joy we can have in anticipating a not maybe, but a certain future blessing is the idea. Not only this, but we boast, we exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's just pause and be reminded, beloved. Sorrow is normal as a Christian. It's, it's constant in some sense. There's sort of a paradoxical nature of being a Christian. You're sorrowful because of the ways you fall short, the condition of the world, hard things that happen, your burden for the lost. But also, the, let's be clear, there should be a rejoicing and a joy in a believer. There should be, you know, we shouldn't just walk around like Eeyore all the time. Suffering is real. Suffering is hard. Yes, we mourn. We're in sorrow a lot. That's good. That's normal. That's healthy. But we should also have a, a deep, settled joy. That, man, yeah, all this stuff is just, just as a, the muck of life. But there is a rejoicing here and a joy. Steve Lawson has rightly said, there should be no stoic believers. There should be some life in us. Why? Because everything's so happy and great? No, it stinks a lot. Nevertheless, verse 11, we boast in God or exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've received the reconciliation because of the past justification, because of the past reconciliation, and therefore because of the certainty of salvation. 
We need to have a little bit of, you know what? <laughs> Things are going to be okay and better than okay. As we keep our mind on the tracks of truth. When we don't, if you struggle like I do and you allow your mind to get derailed from it, okay, we will sometimes be unhinged from truth and therefore unnecessarily lack joy. But he's saying, God is inviting us and calling us. We boast in God. Notice we don't boast in everything's going well for me today. We don't boast in all my circumstances have worked out perfectly. We don't boast that it's a deep powder day. You can be happy about that, but it isn't always. God wants us to have a more fixed joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ultimate joy that can't be taken away is in God. Because no matter what's happening, he can't be taken away. Christ can't be taken away. The joy we have through whom we've received the reconciliation, reconciliation to God, that can't be taken away. So how does that tell us of the certainty of salvation? What is, what's the link there? This is how. Think about this. Can you be called and invited and commanded to celebrate and boast and have a confident rejoicing in something that's a maybe? Several years back, uh, the, the Cinderella movie came out in the cinema. Cinderella. And my young daughters at the time, you know, they were like two and a half, four and a half, six and a half. They could hardly stand themselves when they heard about it. They'd seen the, you know, the, the cartoon version and we read them the story. And then news broke, guess what, girls? The, the, there's a real life version of Cinderella coming out like at Christmas time. At the movie house, you know, with the recliners, you know, it was just, they were stoked. And I told them, and I told them, we'll go see it as a little Christmas treat. And, you'll, and we'll go see it. And not only this, girls, you can sit in your own reclining chair, have a bucket of popcorn and some bonbons and sit there and watch it the whole time. Needless to say, they rejoiced. But imagine if I said, well, girls, the movie came out, uh, the Cinderella movie, and I want you to rejoice that you get to see it. I want you to, re- to, 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 to boast and exult that you're going to get to sit there with your own popcorn and whatever. I got the tickets. But I don't know if you're going to see it. Let's see. If you can behave perfectly for the next 30 days, well, then you can go see it. If you can be flawless in your demeanor for the next month, well, then you can keep the tickets and the bonbons and and have the popcorn. But if not, sorry, you're not going to get to see it. Would it make sense then if I told them, okay, be joyful now and rejoice? They'd be hopeless. They know that they couldn't rejoice in this Cinderella movie and the bonbons because there's no way, like dad and like mom, they're going to be able to be perfect for the next 30 days. It would make no sense. How could they rejoice and celebrate and anticipate with joy something that was uncertain and probably impossible? That's the, that's the line of reasoning here in verse 11. 
God says this thing is so certain that you need to be joyful about this. That you need to boast. That's what the Greek word means. You need to have a boasting joy of anticipation. And the tender humility and joy that God has not only saved you, but is saving you and will save you. The certainty of salvation. Because it's based on Christ. Again, notice what the joy is founded in. Boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Notice very, very importantly in verse 11, it doesn't say, be joyful that you're so awesome. You're so You're such a moral Olympian that you can keep the law until you die and go to heaven and that you can secure your way to heaven. It doesn't say anything like that. It's we boast in God through Christ, through whom we've received the reconciliation. Follow the line of reasoning, so be joyful then, he says. God's not a killjoy, by the way. We should cringe when we hear, when our our not-yet-believing friends think, oh, God's just like this killjoy. Like, oh, man, you don't get it. No, God isn't going to tell us to be joyful in a maybe salvation. Which is to say, God's not going to command us to have this anticipatory boasting, rejoicing in Finneyism or Arminianism or Pelagianism. This is a God who has secured salvation. This is all about God's love, right? It's not about these like heady doctrinal terms and isms. At the end of the day, beloved, the reason salvation is so secure and certain is because God is so sovereign and loving. That's why. Salvation is so certain because God is so sovereign and loving. He's not going to get in a bad mood and say, oh, I did this thing, but sorry. This is the certainty of salvation, the love of God, this lavish banquet of the love of God. Salvation in Christ received simply by knee-bowing faith, empty-hand presenting faith to God. Faith just means I come with an empty hand. Say, God, I couldn't save myself. I deserve eternal wrath. I deserve hell like everybody else. Faith comes with that confession and the empty hand and says, I need Christ. That's all it is. Like a child, simple believing in Jesus Christ. And it's wrong of anyone to think, well, I've sinned too much. I'm too far gone. I've done X, Y, or Z. I mean, it's just, as we'll see in Romans 5.20, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The certainty of past justification, the certainty of past reconciliation, the certainty on the reality of present rejoicing. Eternal life guaranteed. Where are you at with this? Are you saved? How sad it would be for someone to hear about Christ and say, no, thank you. Uh, you know, I got some, something else in life that's more important. I don't, I don't want to go to heaven. How tragic that would be. And not only tragic, but how wrong it would be for God to just gush this love and this grace and someone to stiff arm Christ. That is atrocious which is why his wrath will be real. It must be. 
So where are you? Have you bowed the knee in faith to Jesus Christ? Or are you just hearing a lot of words that are piling up judgment? Having heard these things, blessed are those who then act on them. As Jesus said of the wise man who hears the words and builds his house on a rock. It's like the guy who hears, okay, and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. And those who don't are like those who hear the words of Christ, are like a guy who builds his house on the sand. And Jesus says, the rain came, the winds pounded, the flood gushed forth, and that house fell, and great was its fall because it had been built on the sand. But the wise man who hears the offer of salvation, the certainty of salvation and the love of God in Jesus Christ, who repents and puts faith in Jesus Christ. He's like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came, the wind blew, the floods gushed, and the house stood strong because it was built on the rock. May none of us leave here and end the day without bowing the knee in faith to Jesus Christ. We know what to do. And it's very simple. And Christ will have, God will have any of it. I mean, if God can save a person like me, the kind of person I was when he saved me, he can save anybody. And he will, by faith in Jesus Christ. And rest assured, your salvation will be secure. Father in heaven, thank you for your love that is just so much more than what we deserve. Forgive us, those of us who are believers, who have we've been more excited about other things in life. We haven't been as humble as we ought to be before you. Forgive us if and when we haven't been as loving towards other people in light of how much you've loved us. Forgive us if and when we aren't as meek and tender towards others in light of how meek and tender you've been towards us, even though we were your enemies. Forgive us when we haven't given grace to others in light of the grace you've just gushed on us in a secure salvation. And Father, let us go this week and all the ups and downs we'll face, knowing that salvation is secure because of past justification, past reconciliation, your invitation and command to rejoice in the present. Lord, let us all put faith in Christ. I pray that nobody in here, nobody hearing this right now, would fail or refuse to bow the knee to Jesus and therefore end up experiencing your eternal wrath and that deservedly. May all of us fall before you and receive your great love by faith alone and have a secure salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.